This is a Federal News Network podcast. Last month, the House passed a resolution that helps pave the way for its staff members to unionize. The measure essentially grants House staffers the same legal protections other federal employees have against retaliation if they do try to formally organize a labor union. Backers say it's needed in part because of low pay and high turnover on Capitol Hill. But not everyone thinks it's a good idea, including our next guest. Suzanne Bates is a senior writer and researcher at Americans for Fair Treatment, a group that calls itself a union watchdog. She talked with me about what she sees as the downsides. This is a new thing, uh, organizing political staffers. We've seen it in some campaigns, and now we're seeing it in some state legislatures. And then, you know, Congress is kind of the big big prize, I think, at the end. And so um, our concerns are that this is already a very political space. Unions are political organizations. They spend a lot of money on politics, including elections and lobbying, you know, $2 billion by their own accounting last year. So, you know, I think this is just going to make uh, Congress more political than it already is. And it may lead to some unhappy staffers, not to mention members of Congress. We, we, we don't have a lot of experience with with unionizing among members of legislative bodies, but there's plenty of experience at the at the agency level. A lot of those folks are in our audience right now listening. And I, I think they would probably bristle at the idea that membership in a union is affecting their work or influencing their work decisions. So what, I mean, what's, what's the evidence that this would be a problem in a, in a, in a legislative branch? Sure. We're already seeing, I mean, we've seen unions in, in federal and state agencies trying to use their positions to gain a foothold on policy issues. The latest example um, is the American uh, Federation of Government Employees, one of their locals that represents um, EPA employees. said that during collective bargaining, they plan to ask for um, a a climate uh, emergency declaration by President Biden. You know, that's, I mean, that's not what we traditionally think of as collective bargaining, right? We think of it as as being just about what the employee needs, their benefits, their pay, their working conditions. Um, So when you add in the sort of the public sector, it, it adds another layer you know, of politics and, and it's, it becomes more complicated. And especially if you see something like that, where uh, a union that represents members of the bureaucracy ask for an actual policy change in collective bargaining, what does that mean for Congress, right? Where you're, you're already talking about political staffers. There was sort of this idea that there was a dividing line between people who worked for agencies, like you said, you know, and then people who worked in political offices, because, you know, members of Congress, members of state legislatures need to be able to be more nimble, perhaps in their, you know, hiring and firing decisions. This is going to change that. I mean, we, we really don't have that much experience with seeing unions in a politicized environment like this. It's, it's going to be very different, I think, than what you see at the agency level. In the EPA example you just used, I, I can totally understand disagreeing with the position the union took there in negotiations. And, and you know, EPA is free to say, you're crazy. We're not doing that. It's not your position to make that request in the first place. Um, but it's hard for me to get from there to public employees should therefore not have the right to organize. Draw that well, connection so a little more saying, closely if you could. Yeah, no, I'm not saying public employees should have should not have the right to organize. And especially, I mean, again, at the agency level, I think um, we have a history of that now. We've seen sort of how it plays out. I do have some concerns. I mean, we work with public employees who've been harmed by their unions in some way. And so in a public environment, it 
it changes the dynamics a lot because you're talking about people who can help elect the people who they're bargaining with, right? And so it just changes the dynamic versus a private sector environment where you've kind of got this natural tension between the bosses and the workers, right? It's a, it's just a different environment in the public sector. But we're not saying you shouldn't unionize the public sector. But I do think, again, the political staff, it's just a, a, a next level. So so what happens if, you know, you don't like what your boss is doing? Do you threaten to primary the member of Congress? Um, do you spend money in a primary? I mean, we, we already know that unions do spend money in primaries trying to get rid of, um, or at least they fund organizations. For example, the Working Families Party, which is mostly union funded. Primaries, uh, members of Congress and members of state legislators, legislatures that are, who are not progressive enough for them. You know, so what kind of bargaining chip does that create in, in Congress, right? Where you're, where you're talking about your boss is, a member of Congress, and you so so are you going to use that leverage? And I, I just think it raises questions and concerns that don't exist again at the agency level. Uh, in the legislative branch, um, I, I, I want to address the issue of referring to these folks as as political creatures. Some of them certainly are. I mean, you've got uh, tons of examples of legislative assistants and communications directors, et cetera, et cetera, moving back and forth between the campaign and the congressional office. There's a lot of people too, though that that spend their time on policy stuff, especially at the committee level. Could you could you solve some of the concerns that you have by, I don't know, narrowing the right to unionize in some way so that people who are more directly involved in the political side of things are, are restricted? Or let me broaden the question out even further. Is there anything in this House resolution that you would change to, uh, to solve some of the concerns that you have while allowing some kind of organizing? Well, so we we don't know yet what the scope of collective bargaining will be. And so that that wasn't addressed in this resolution. So there's still so many unanswered questions. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there's some idea that that we won't see, you know, bargaining over wages or benefits. So what will they bargain over? So I think if you have a very narrow scope, then potentially, but maybe something besides like unions, again, are just such political organizations at this point in, in where we are in America that I just can't picture, um, you know, introducing unions into the legislature and not having them create more tension and more, uh, you know, a, a more deeply partisan political atmosphere. So like, you, you know, you're talking about the committee staff versus like a, an office staff, right? They're also hired by political parties, right? To run those committees, like they, it changes depending on who's in control of the, of the legislature at that time. So, they're political. I mean, that's that's their function. Their function is to answer to you know political partisan, um, you know, members of Congress. And so, what will it mean to introduce again a deeply partisan political organization into that dynamic? Will it change? Like, if the Republicans take control of, of the House, will the unions not be invited in anymore? I mean, I think there's just so many questions that are still unanswered about how this would even work. The main rationale that's been offered for for why this needs to happen is is really around wages. Congressional staff wages are incredibly low for for the market that folks are expected to live in there. Are there are there other ways to solve that problem besides unionization? Yeah, absolutely. Well, and that's I mean, I think really like the wages were really terrible. The fact that they had to set a floor at 45,000 and that, you know, that's going to raise a lot of people's salaries just tells you that it's you know, but it, it is kind of considered a stepping stone, right, to other jobs that pay better. 
um, you know, it ends up being a lot of sort of young staffers. But I, I mean, I think most people think they deserve a fair wage, right? And unions are one way to get there. That's what the unions want. But but again, are they even going to be able to bargain over wages? That's not even you know determined at this point. So are there other ways? Yeah. Look, they they just got a, a raise without unions, right? They they kind of publicly went out there. They they have these Instagram accounts that people have created, you know, to to air some of their grievances. Um, it sounds like some sexual harassment problems are a real issue in Congress. I think we've known that for a long time. There probably needs to be a better way to deal with those. But I I think when they take these things to the public, especially this press, you know, there's so much media around them, and they're I think really interested in what's going on on the Hill. They they have a sympathetic audience, and they've clearly put, been able to put pressure on their bosses, and you know they've gotten a raise. Um, and I think that that can happen again. Unions are not the only way to do this. Suzanne Bates is a senior writer and researcher at Americans for Fair Treatment. You can find this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. This episode is sponsored in part by U.S. Bank Visa Platinum Card. There are plenty of shopping cards out there. The last thing I need is more store-branded cards, and that got me thinking. What if I could earn more, like 6% cash back, but with one card at all of my favorite stores? Well, the folks at U.S. Bank are on it. Check out the U.S. Bank Shopper Cash Rewards Visa Signature Card. It can earn you up to 6% cash back. 6%, not bad. Check out usbank.com slash shopper to learn more. It's easy. You just grab your shopping list and shop two of your favorite retailers for up to 6% cash back. And you can change your two selections every quarter. I'm talking 24 different big name retailers like Amazon, Walmart, Target. That would be good enough, but this card can also earn you up to $250 cash back after you spend $2,000 within the first 120 days of opening your account. And who doesn't do that at Amazon, Walmart, or Target, for God's sake? You can also earn up to 3% cash back from your choice of one everyday category like gas and EV charging stations, bills and utilities, or wholesale clubs. Plus, you'll earn 1.5% cash back on all other eligible purchases. You deserve premium awards, and the U.S. Bank Shopper Cash Rewards card is here for you. Learn more at usbank.com slash shopper and start earning. Limited time offer. The creditor and issue of this card is U.S. Bank National Association pursuant to a license from Visa USA, Inc. Some restrictions may apply. All I want for Christmas is a DWI. Yeah, said no one ever. Impaired driving kills the holiday spirit. Drive sober, drive smart. Extra enforcement now on Minnesota roads. A message from the Minnesota Department of Public Safety.